Again, uh, I, I really thank Sean for covering for me last week. I was uh, got asked to teach at Calvary Chapel Joplin last Sunday, and it was a real blessing to be out there, and good to be back. But we're going to pick it up where, from where we left off last time together, and that's in the book of James. And we're going to be in chapter 1, we're going to be looking at verses 9 through 18. So if you need a Bible, just raise your hand, and George will get one right to your seat to follow along with us. There's some large print Bibles there, too. George, the ones with the hardcover on it, if they want a large print. Um, James chapter 1, verses 9 through 18 this morning. Anybody else need a Bible? We want George to get some exercise. Some over here. Large print. Anybody else need a Bible? (laughs) I'm kidding. (laughs) Thank you, George. All right, starting chapter 1, verse 9, James writes, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation. Because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flowers falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of firstfruits of his creatures." The title of my message this morning is Dealing with Temptation. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend in your word. <clears throat> thank you, Lord, that we have the freedom in this place to own Bibles, to be able to gather together without any uh, fear of uh, being shut down, Lord, that we can hear from you this morning. We are privileged people, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your word, that it changes our lives as we heed it and apply it. And Lord, I do pray that if there's anyone here that is yet to come into that saving knowledge of your Son, Jesus Christ, are not born again this morning, would you especially speak to their hearts today, help them see their need for you. So bless our time together, we pray. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. The late singer and songwriter, many of you may remember, it was a man by the name of Carmen. He went by Carmen. He had a song many years ago called The Temptation Boogie. And I like the lyrics to it. It goes like this. I woke up Monday morning with my head all full of nothing. I went down to McDonald's to get me an Egg McMuffin. Still half asleep, uh, yet wide awake around 7.23, when some loudmouth pushy businessman cut in front of me. My eyes went cold. I clenched my fist. I wanted to thump him good. But then the Spirit stopped me when I saw how it stood. The Holy Ghost reminded me I represent the Lord and it would be hard to witness to him stretched out 
on the floor. <laughs> but then the chorus goes on. Some people say, let it out. Some people say, hold it in. But Jesus says to crucify it, for that thing there is sin. And I was fighting with temptation. I was dueling with that thing. Bondage and struggle is all that it will bring. Well, what's a soul to do when it's face to face with sin? You ought to pray not once but twice, put on the mind of Christ, and get that sweet old victory again. Great song. There's one more verse. Let me share that one with you. Well, I grabbed my Superman beach towel, two T10 on lotion. I thought I'd take a cruise and catch some rays down by the ocean. I had it all planned out to roast some burgers and some weenies. But when I arrived, everything but the telephone poles was dressed up in bikinis. I knew there must be a way to please the Lord and still get tan, but I felt so stupid with my big old head stuck in the sand. And then again, the chorus. Some people say, let it out. Some people say, hold it in. Jesus says to crucify it. For that thing there is sin. I was fighting with temptation. I was dueling with that thing. Bondage and struggle is all that it will bring. What's a soul to do when it's face to face with sin? You had to pray not once but twice, put on the mind of Christ, and get that sweet old victory again. See, this morning we're going to look at the subject of temptation. I just want to make sure this message is relevant this morning. So let me ask a few questions. How many of you have ever been tempted? Raise your hand. Okay. How many of you have been given into that temptation? Okay, if you didn't raise your hand, you're liars, and you just gave into that temptation to a lying and so. Just want to make sure we're all on the same page. Because temptation is certainly a subject we are all familiar with. None of us enjoy it, but it's a reality for the Christian life. No doubt we would rather there was no such thing as temptation. Now, right off the bat, because we've been talking about trials and difficulties that we all face as believers, we need to make it clear that the difference between trials and temptations. Because in the Greek, the word is the same, just used differently. For those of you that are my age, a trial is what O.J. Simpson went through, and the temptations were a singing group. <laughs> For those of you that are younger, you know, I haven't a clue what you're talking about. But the simplest definition of temptation is a solicitation or invitation to do evil. A trial is the exact opposite. Trials are designed by God for your growth, for your maturity in the Lord. Temptations are designed by Satan for your destruction. When it comes to temptations, many of us just, we have a hard time saying no. And the problem with temptation is it's just so tempting. And therefore, we've gotten really good at rationalizing our sin. It's like the little boy whose mother caught him eating the cookies she had told him not to eat. Uh, Mama said, I thought I told you not to eat those cookies. The boy replied, it's not my fault. I just got up on the chair to smell the cookies and my teeth got caught. (laughs) Temptation comes in the form of many things to fulfill our lust, our desires, to lie, to cheat, to steal, to be dishonest. Some of the, the biggest trials that we have in our lives have to deal with our finances. And I would say some of the strongest temptations that we have to deal with have to deal with our finances. And yet James tells us in verse 9, when it comes to our finances, when it comes to the haves and the have-nots, don't worry about it. Don't worry about about who's got what and what you don't have. It's all going to perish. Look at verses 9 through 11. James puts it this way. He says, Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. 
its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. See, knowing this, James reminds us that regardless of our financial situation on earth, we're exalted, we're elevated above the world system because we're, we're part of a kingdom whose streets are, are lined with gold. They're paved with gold. All this world has to offer is like a flower. It's going to pass away, but God has prepared for us something that is so far greater than anything that we can imagine on this earth. See, I think that's important for us to realize when it comes to temptation. That this world has nothing to offer us that can compare to what God has prepared for those who love Him. And that's why James then says, look at verse 12, Blessed is the man who endures temptation, for he has been approved. He will receive the crown of life which the Lord has promised to those who love Him. So then the question is, how do we endure temptation? More importantly, how do we have victory over temptation and not become a statistic or victim? Well, if you're a note-taker, we're going to look at four things concerning temptation this morning. Number one, the sad truth of temptation. Number two, the source of temptation. Number three, the steps of temptation. And number four, the solution to temptation. Number one, the sad truth of temptation. And here's the sad truth about temptation. Everyone is tempted. Everyone. Notice James says in verse 13, Let no one say when he is tempted... When he's tempted, not if he's tempted, but when he is tempted. I read a story about a husband who confessed about something that happened to him while he and his wife were out shopping at the mall. He says, while my wife and I were shopping, a shapely young woman in a short form-fitting dress strolled by. My eyes followed her. My wife, however, without looking up from the item she was looking at, asked, was it really worth the trouble you're in right now? (laughs) Kind of saw him from the corner of her eye. Why? Listen, temptations are something we all struggle with. Oscar Wilde once said, I can resist anything except temptation. In fact, in our culture today, it's popular not to resist temptation. We're living at a time much like during the time of Judges in Judges 21-25. It says in those days there was no king in Israel and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. We live in a society where we're encouraged to, to not resist temptation. Billy Sunday once said, one reason that sin flourishes is that we treat it like a cream puff instead of a rattlesnake. Listen, yielding to temptation causes so much destruction in the family, in the homes. Life has been scarred. Ministries have been ruined. Homes have been destroyed. All because of yielding to temptation, giving in to temptation. David, a man after God's own heart, killing a giant, this great man, succumbed to adultery and then murder. Solomon, who knew in the beginning to ask for wisdom, in the end gave it to the temptation with a thousand wives and worshiping and sacrificing to the false gods. Peter, who made this confession of the Messiah, saying he would never deny him, hours later said he never knew him. See, don't think that you can ever come to a point in your life that you cannot fall to temptation. In fact, we're told in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, Therefore let him who thinks he stands take heed lest he fall. See, the sad truth about temptation really is fourfold. First, we, we never come to a point in our life where we'll not be tempted. Second, temptation often comes at our weakest moments. Maybe you're down and discouraged and, and, and just, just, just tough and instead of looking to the Lord, you look to the world for, for comfort, maybe through alcohol or drugs. 
Third, temptation often comes after great blessings. I mean, don't be surprised as soon as you walk out of church if you're not tempted, you know. Don't be surprised if you're tempted right after God has done some wonderful work in your life. I think of Jesus after he was baptized there in the Jordan River. The Spirit came upon him in the form of a dove. A voice was heard from heaven, from the Father saying, This is my beloved Son, whom I'm well pleased. The Bible says that after that, the devil immediately came and began to tempt him. And then fourthly, temptation often comes to those that are making a difference for the kingdom of God. The devil will often attack those who are making a difference for the kingdom. You know, he's going to attack those who, who are seeking to walk with God and reach others with the gospel. See, if there's one thing that Satan hates, that's evangelism. It's bad enough that he's lost us, but when we seek to go out and with others to Christ and bring more people to heaven, that means we're taking more people from hell and Satan doesn't like that. So he's going to attack you. He's going to try and get you to stop. Now that doesn't mean we should stop evangelizing. It's just to make you aware of his tactics. To make you aware of his devices. Because the, end of the, the other end of that it was C.H. Spurgeon who said, you don't kick a dead horse. And quite honestly, the devil doesn't have to do a lot with some believers. They're already there where he wants them to be, immobilized, ineffective, just sitting around and doing nothing for the Lord. But when a man or woman steps up to the plate and says, use me, Lord, I want my life to make a difference. You know, they need to brace themselves because the enemy isn't going to applaud you for that. Don't expect a standing ovation in hell when that happens. Expect opposition. Expect temptations to come your way and not the singing group. And then no, First Corinthians 10, 13, no temptation has taken you, overtaken you, but such that it's common to men. Every temptation that we face, it's all the same. All the same categories, every preacher, every man, every woman, every child, every pope, every evangelist, every president has been tempted. There's no saint or sinner without temptation. And if we're ever going to experience victory over temptation, it must begin with the realization that we will never reach a point in this life when we will not be tempted. We'll never reach a point where we'll say, I am too old to sin. That'll never happen. Now, hopefully, the longer you walk with the Lord, you sin less. But I think of David, you know, did very well until he was 50 years old. Then he fell. Just because you've done well so far doesn't mean you continue to do well from here on in. The ministry is strewn with those who didn't finish well and have given into temptation. So we need to be aware of that and be prepared for that and to realize that temptation affects all of us. Now let me make something very clear that's very important. Temptation itself is not a sin. It's yielding to that temptation that makes it a sin. We cannot sin without being tempted, but we can be tempted and not sin. And this brings us to point number two, the source of temptation. So what is the source of temptation? Well, first and foremost, James makes it very clear where it does not come from. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt anyone. So if you are caught in a sin, don't blame God for it. Don't say, well, if God didn't want me to eat all of Andy's frozen custard, he shouldn't have made it taste so good. People make excuses like that all the time. If God didn't want me to have sexual relations before I was married, then he wouldn't have made me with these desires. This is very important for us to understand. No temptation for evil comes from God. That's totally opposite of God's nature. 
So when we are tempted, we can't blame God for it. We'd like to blame God. In fact, blaming God started all the way back in the garden there. First temptation was out of Eve and Adam fell along with her. And the result, Eve blamed the serpent and Adam blamed God. It's the woman you gave me, God. And don't we not do the same kind of thing? We like to blame shift. It's everybody else's fault, but not mine. Or it's not my fault, it's my upbringing. It's my nationality. It's, it's my Irish temper. It's my Italian appetite. It's my California driving habits. Well, maybe it is, but anyway. It's the kids you gave me, God. <laughs> Listen, we'll see in a second who's responsible, but no, it's not God. Since God has nothing to do with sin, when you sin, you need to blame someone else rather than God. James tells us exactly who that person is. Look at verse 14. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. There it is. There's a person to blame. It's you. It's me. We must put the blame where blame is due. It's ourselves. I think this is as clear as it gets. You and I sin because we choose to sin. But that's not all this verse is saying. This verse also means we can't blame our sin on Satan. Satan cannot make you or I sin. A lot of people think that the devil drags people into the sin against their, their will and he makes them do things against their will. You know the phrase, well, the devil just made me do it. Very popular. It's like the woman who was married to a penny pincher. He told his wife she could go to the mall and look, but she couldn't buy a new dress. Well, she comes home and she's wearing a new dress. The husband's very upset and said, didn't I tell you not to buy a new dress? Well, why did you do it? She responded, well, the devil made me do it. He, he, you know, he said it looked good on me. To that, the husband replied, didn't you tell him, get behind me, Satan? I did, said the wife, and that's when he said it looks, it looks good from the back, too. And so I bought it. But see, it's not the devil that makes us sin. In fact, Jesus makes it very clear where sin comes from. Jesus said in Mark 7, 21 through 23, for from within... Out of the heart of men proceed evil thoughts, adulteries, fornications, murders, thefts, covetousness, wickedness, deceit, lewdness, an evil eye, blasphemy, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and defile a man. Now, let me say this. The devil doesn't make us do things that we don't want to do, but he certainly has gotten down to a science, the right things to place in front of you that will make you want to do them. He knows those things that are tempting to you. And because he says thousands of years of practice, he presents them to us. You know, he's like the farmer's insurance commercial. He knows a thing or two because he's seen a thing or two. And he knows what works. He knows what's tempting to us and what's not. And we need to realize that our adversary, the devil, he is powerful. We don't want to underestimate him. And we need to have a healthy respect for him. A hatred for sure, but still a respect. He's a powerful spirit being with a well-organized network of demons ready to do his bidding. The Bible says we don't have to be ignorant of his devices or literally his strategies and his deceits. And the Bible says greater is he that is us than he that is in the world. But you see, once you're aware of how he operates, you can then prepare yourself for when temptations do come and learn how to resist. In fact, when we get to James chapter 4, he'll tell us, resist the devil and he'll flee from you. So point number one, the sad truth of temptation, we're all tempted, but it's not a sin to be tempted, only when we give in to the temptation, it becomes sin. Point number two, the source of temptation, it's us. 
we're the only ones that make the sin. We're all tempted in the control of whether we resist or, or give in strictly lies with us. Point number three, the steps of temptation. Again, look at verse 14 on through verse 16. But each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. James wants us to see the big picture. Sin leads to death. Don't think that it doesn't. We will reap what we sow. The phrase, do not be deceived, could be translated, stop being deceived. That's because there are some that might think that their sin is not going to to catch up with them. They'll say, oh, I know the Bible says your sin will find you out, but it hasn't found me out so far, and so I've been doing this for such some time, and so I haven't been caught, haven't been busted. Watch out. It will catch up with you. It will ultimately bring forth death. Sooner or later it's going to happen. You're not the one exception to, to Scripture. Trust me. The Bible warns us about this. We will reap what we sow. Be assured your sin will find you out. But it all starts with that temptation. Verse 14, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. The first step to giving in the temptation that leads to death, it starts with that desire. The Bible calls it lust, which is not just sexual lust. The word for desire here can also mean the desire for what is forbidden. No, it could be a desire to worry when God's Word tells us not to worry. It could be a desire to gossip when God's Word teaches us not to gossip. It could be a desire to break any of the, of the Lord's commandments, His laws, but it all starts with that desire. Now, there are different words that the Bible uses for desire, and not all are meant in an evil way. If that were the case, then we would have a real problem with Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your hearts. See, God gives us good desires. He's given us the desire for food, for sexual fulfillment, for sleep. These are good desires. Without them, there'd be serious problems. You can't live unless you eat. You can't function properly without sleep. Without sexual relations, we wouldn't be here. We cease to exist. The problem comes when we seek to satisfy those desires in ways outside of the will of God. That's when we get ourselves in trouble. Eating is a normal fact of life. In fact, some of you are saying, I'm really hungry right now. Would you finish already? We'll get to that. But Eating is not wrong, but gluttony is a sin. Sleep is normal, unless you're in church right now sawing logs. But, but, but sleep is normal, but laziness is sin. The Bible says marriage is honorable among all and the bed undefiled. But Hebrews 13.4 says, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. You see, desire only becomes temptation when you allow yourself to be drawn away and enticed to fulfill that desire sinfully. And these words drawn away here in verse 14 has the idea of baiting of a trap. And the word enticed in the original Greek means to to bait a hook. Now you hunters, you guys that can spend hours walking around Bass Pro, know that no animal will deliberately step into a trap. No fish is only going to bite just a hook. No, that fisherman, he hides that hook with that bait to make it look like that fish is going to get this free meal. And that fisherman, he's nowhere to be seen. But that, that weight that he puts, puts on there, it's either alive and moving or it's a, it's a lure. And isn't that what a lure is? Something that, that draws the fish to it. 
making it think that it's food. Now, if it's done right, the fish only sees the enticement of the bait. In the same way, Satan's bait is to not only lure us into sin, but to hide the consequences of our sin from us. You know, when that fish bites, he bites into more than what he's bargained for. He's biting into his death because he's going to be that fisherman's dinner that night after he's cooked and cleaned and caught. So, too, we get dragged into sin and we allow our desires to lead us right into Satan's deceptions. And for Satan to succeed, we must listen, yield, and most importantly, desire what he offers. Now, Satan will use different types of bait to tempt us, to, to tempt us rather. But remember, it's not the bait that constitutes sin, it's the bite. It's, it's not a sin for that lure to be in front of us. It's only when we bite, that's where the problem comes. Now, Satan works with his two close allies. They're the world and they're our flesh. The world, the flesh, and the devil, that's our three enemies. Now, the world speaks of this world system that's largely hostile to the Lord. It's that mentality that says, look out for number one. Look out for your own desires. Pursue your own agenda above what God would say or anyone else would say. It's personal gratification. Your will above everyone else's, looking out for number one, numero uno. That's what the world is all about. Yet we as believers know, 1 John 5.19 says, we know that we are children of God and that the whole world around us is under the power and the control of the evil one. In Ephesians 2, Paul calls Satan the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now works in the sons of disobedience. You know, the devil is referred to in 2 Corinthians 4 as the, the God of this world. And that's why the Bible tells us in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing, renewing of your mind that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. And that's why we're told in Romans uh, rather, 1 John 2.15, Do not love the world, nor the things that are in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Now, some, some people take this way too far. So I just love the ocean. Don't love the world, neither the things that are in the world. And they talk that way. I don't know if they do or not. Oh, what a beautiful day. I oh, don't love the world, nor the things that are in the world. You know. oh, I love my dog. Oh, I don't love the world, things of the world. Stop talking like that. Just shut up. That's not what he's saying. We as believers should richly enjoy all that God has blessed us with. But to see this word for world, it means the evil world system which Satan is the prince and the power over. Well, specifically, uh, what, what specifically makes this, world, this evil world system? Well, 1 John 2.16 answers that question. And that's an important question to answer because the answer gives us three categories that temptation falls into. Making us an evil world world that we live in. Listen to what John says in 1 John 2.16. All that is in the world that Satan has control over at this point, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but of the world. Right there. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. That's what makes this world, this evil world system. And it falls into three categories. First, the lust of the flesh. This speaks of our physical drive. As I said already, God has placed certain needs in us as human beings. The need to eat, the need to drink, the need to breathe. He has given us a sexual drive. The problem comes when we seek to satisfy these needs in ways outside of God's will. Then we get in trouble. Then there is the lust of the eyes. Now the lust of the eyes is a little bit different. It speaks of what I see and then bringing it into my mind, into my imagination, into my thoughts. And we begin to, we begin to think about it. We begin to, to ponder things. 
And you'll find that the, the, the most sins that you've fallen into are first what you saw, and then you started pondering and thinking about it in your mind. Again, the life of David, a man after God's own heart, in the days when men went off to battle, David stayed behind. And in 2 Samuel 11, 2, it says, And it happened one evening that David arose from his bed and walked on the roof of the king's house, and from the roof he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful to behold. We know that David fell into temptation, fell into sin, when he saw Bathsheba. Now, what we should read, and what would have pleased the Lord, if we would have read, and David walked in the roof when he saw a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful but to, to David to behold, but he turned around and went back to bed because he knew she was a married man, and a married woman, and she was a married man. He wanted to please the Lord. That's what we should have heard. That's what we should read. But David didn't do that. Because the lust of the eyes kicked in. Then the lust of the flesh took over and David fell. And that brings us to the, to the third thing that we read here, the pride of life. Rather than admitting that, that he sinned with Bathsheba, in his pride, David tried to cover it up until Nathan, the prophet, confronted him and, and David had to confess his sin. Or think about Eve, again, there in the garden, tempted by the, the serpent to eat of the knowledge of the tree of good and evil. All three of the same areas uh, he appealed to her. Genesis 3, 6 says, When the woman saw that the tree was good for food and pleasant to the eyes and desirable to make one wise, she took of the food and ate it. There it is. Eve saw that the tree was good for food, the lust of the flesh, that it was pleasant to the eyes, lust of the eyes, and desirable to make one wise, the pride of life. Maybe so. I, I, don't, I don't give in to the lust of my flesh. I, I'm a self-controlled person. I don't look at things I shouldn't. I, I know better. Well, now you may be guilty of the pride of life. Be careful that our hearts don't get filled up with pride. This brings us to our final point, number four, the solution to temptation. Simply put, it's the Word of God. Knowing the Word of God and applying the Word of God. How do we deal with the temptation for the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life? Obey the Word of God. If it's the lust of the flesh... Paul wrote in Romans 13, 14, but put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to fulfill its lust. Obey what the Word says. How do you deal with the lust of the eyes? Well, what does the Word say? Psalm 103, 101, verse 3, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. Do what the Word says. How do we deal with the pride of life? Peter tells us, 1 Peter 5, 5 and 6, God resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. Therefore, humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that He may exalt you in due time. Obey what the Word says. And that works for whatever temptation may come your way. God will always make a way for you to escape it. That's what Paul says again in 1 Corinthians 10.13. No temptation has overtaken you, but such it is common to man. But God is faithful who will not allow you to be tempted beyond what you are able, but with the temptation will also make the way of escape that you may be able to bear it. Listen, memorize Scripture. Why? Because there's going to be times when you're going to feel like you can't make it. That is too much. That's when you need to quote 1 Corinthians 10.13 to reassure yourself of the truth and then to apply that truth. Again, it does no good to recite a verse if you don't apply it. This word for escape in 1 Corinthians 10.13 refers to a mountain pass and has the idea of an army backed up its wall you know, against the hillside by the enemy and suddenly seeing a pathway through the, through the mountain, a way of escape. Many times we find ourselves backed up against a wall. And we don't see the obvious way out. 
And we look at the temptation and say, wow, this is a huge temptation. I don't know, I think I, I, I might give in to that. And this is, I've never faced anything like this. And we keep looking until we fall because we're not looking for a way of escape. Or we're not taking the way of escape. And maybe you're watching TV and a scene comes on the screen that you know is going to feed to that lust. Here's an idea. Okay, just an idea. There's this little thing you hold in your hand. It's called a remote. Usually on the left or the right side of it, there's a little red button. If you push that button, something miraculous happens. The image goes away. It's gone. It's called a power button. Turn it off. See, here's what it comes down to. Let's do everything we can to stay out of the way of temptation. Let's look every time for a way to escape. Because God says, His Word says, He will provide it for us if we seek Him and we pray. Finally, I want to close with uh, four ways to deal with temptation. First and foremost, there has to be personal separation. There has to be personal separation. 2 Timothy 2.22 says, Flee youthful lust. Listen, when we're tempted, there's nothing wrong with running away. <laughs> If you're single in your car with your boyfriend and your girlfriend and you're, you're, you're praying and you go to give, give a good night kiss and then another good night kiss and there's another one, there's nothing wrong with you fleeing from your car. If you take your commitment to the Lord seriously and you want to stay pure before marriage, then your girlfriend's going to understand. Your boyfriend's going to understand. There's nothing wrong if you go to a movie and, and it's, it's working up a desire in your heart that you know shouldn't be there that you get up and you walk out of the theater. You know, Joseph did it. Remember his story? Potiphar's wife came on to him and, and tried to seduce him. And Joseph you know, says no and goes to, to get away. And she grabs him and he loses his coat and, and he runs out the door. He got out of there. He separated himself from her. Many times we don't handle temptation because there's no personal separation. We just kind of watch it and we hang there and we're looking at it. Say, well, I can handle it. Proverbs 6.27 tells us you can't. Can a Man take fire to his bosom and his clothes not be burned. So the first step in dealing with temptation is there has to be a, a personal separation. Secondly, there needs to be a biblical saturation. We've talked about this already. Psalm 119.9 asks the question, how can a young man cleanse his way? We want to be clean, don't we? How can we get clean in a society that's so dirty, so perverse? I'm so glad the psalmist goes on to answer us. He says, by taking heed according to God's word. Again, hearing alone won't do it. You need to heed it. <clears throat> Begins by hiding God's word in our heart. David's prayer in Psalm 119.11, Your word have I hidden in my heart that I might not sin against you. I think of Matthew chapter 4 when Jesus was taken into the wilderness and he was tempted by Satan. Each time Jesus said, it is written. And Jesus is our example. He used scripture to combat can combat temptation. And when Satan realized it, you know, well, if he can't beat him, I'll join him. And so he, you know, said, it is written. But since Satan is a liar and a father of all lies, he naturally quoted Scripture out of context. And Jesus says, you're right, you're right, Scripture does say that, but let me tell you what it really says. Let me put it in the context for you. It's written, thou shalt not tempt the Lord your God. And today we have so many people trying to twist Scripture trying to twist it to get to say what they wanted to say to justify their sin. That's why biblical saturation is so important today. So we're not fooled by, by what goes on out there. So there has to be a personal separation, a biblical saturation. Thirdly, there must be a spiritual sanctification. 
set ourselves apart. Listen to Romans 6, 12, and 13. Paul says, Therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in its lust. And do not present your members as instruments of unrighteousness to sin, but present yourselves to God as being alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. And then Paul will go on in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, to say, I beseech you therefore, brethren, that by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. There must be a yielding of all of our members to God instead of yielding to sin. We must obey the Lord and not our lust. This means we're not only to give our hearts to Jesus, but my eyes, my hands, my feet. Asking Him to show me what is right, what is wrong. To keep me from evil. See, our bodies are not our own. We've been bought with a price, so we need to use them to glorify God and not to indulge ourselves. So how do we deal with temptation, a personal separation, a biblical saturation, a spiritual sanctification, and finally, continual subordination or obedience? Continually to be obedient to the Lord. Galatians 5.16, we're told, I say then, walk in the Spirit, and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. We must allow the Holy Spirit to control our daily lives. See, He's the one that enables us, empowers us to resist temptation, to resist that baited hook of the devil. He's the one that allows us to see that it is a hook and see the one who's behind it. See, we must obey God. That's the only way we can face temptation and not become a victim, but rather a victor. We need to put these things into practice. Maybe you're having a hard time saying no. I want to close with this. Each time you say yes to temptation... It makes it harder and harder to say no. So, oh, tomorrow I'll quit. Tomorrow I'll get right with God. Tomorrow I'm going to stop. Tomorrow. But today you're saying, yes, I'm going to indulge one more time, then I'm done. It's harder and harder to say no each time you say yes to temptation. Now, the good news is it gets harder and harder. Rather, the good news is it works the other way around. The more you resist temptation, the easier it is to resist temptation. Now, understand this. When we do blow it, and we all do, understand that we serve a, a loving God, a forgiving God, that we can find that forgiveness anytime by confessing it to Him. And He gives us the strength to resist temptation. Look at verse 17 and 18. We'll close with this. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. In other words, God's not moody, doesn't have bad days. He's not generous with me one day, but grouchy the next. So often we can be. We're, we're variable. We go up and down. God doesn't do that. He can be nothing but good. He doesn't react to me according to how I'm doing with him. He's faithful when I'm not, when I'm faithless. He, he, he's good when I'm grumpy. He doesn't change. He's locked into his nature. He doesn't love me less when I give in to temptation. And he doesn't love me more when I resist temptation. His love is immeasurable. But it's because of God's love for me and the gift of my salvation that makes me want to resist temptation all the more. The more I see how much he loves me, the more I see how he gave his life to pay the penalty of my sin, the more I want to show him my love and appreciate it to him by pleasing him and resisting temptation. And then always look for the way of escape. 
Do the temptation boogie. Pray not once but twice. Put on the mind of Christ and get that sweet old victory again. One final thing. If you don't have a relationship with Jesus Christ, if you're not born again today, you have no power in your life to resist temptation. You're just a sitting duck giving to into whatever Satan throws your way. Aren't you tired of that? Don't you want to have the power of the Holy Spirit to resist temptation? Then give your life to Jesus Christ this morning. Jesus went to the cross. He gave his life freely for you. Jesus never gave into temptation one time. Jesus never sinned. But he took the penalty of your sin because you and I did give it to temptation. We've all sinned. We've all broken God's laws. The Bible says the wages of sin is death. But Jesus died for you and for me. He paid the penalty for our sins. Not only that, he rose again three days later from the dead to prove that he was who he says he was. God in the flesh come down to save mankind. So if you don't know Christ this morning, I encourage you, don't leave this place without committing your life to him today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you. We praise you for this time that we can spend in your word. Holy Spirit, we thank you for the power that you give us, Lord, to resist temptation. We know all of our strength comes from you, Lord, and that you use the power of your word to help us to resist. So help us to be men and women of your word so when those temptations come, Lord, we can stand firm upon it. Help us, Lord, to look for those ways of escape that we might not fall to sin. Lord, help us to, to stand apart from the rest of this world and the lust of the eyes and the lust of the flesh and the pride of life and to live lives holy to you, set apart. And finally, Father, I pray if there's anyone here that is yet to surrender their heart and life to you today, that they would make that commitment to turn from their sin, to seek forgiveness, and to turn to you this morning. While our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed and Christians are praying, is there anyone here you want to give your life to Christ? You want to be born again today? You want to have the power to resist temptation? You want to be saved? You want to know that if you die today, you'd go to heaven, the, the, the real paradise that the Lord has prepared for those that love Him? If that's your desire, would you raise your hand so I could pray for you this morning? Anybody at all? You want to give your life to Christ today? To follow Him all the days of your life? God loves you. Send His Son to die for you. No greater gift than that. Anybody at all? So Father, we, we thank you for this time. We ask for a filling of your Holy Spirit. Empower us to do that which you've called us to do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So I'll stand and we'll do one last song together.